Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I'm privileged to have Sean Heritage in our virtual studios today. Sean and I are going to have a lot to talk about because we have some very similar backgrounds, but I think you'll also find out that we have some similar outlooks going forward. As always, please make sure you subscribe to us and follow us on LinkedIn. Anyway, good morning, Sean, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Sean, a little bit of background. I know that we, we both had the privilege to, to serve in the Navy. Uh, we both had achieved the same end pay grade and, and rank, and uh, we were displaced by about a dozen years and when we started. But you got to live the dream in a way because cyber actually existed during your career, and it didn't during mine. And just about the time they were standing up Cyber Command, I said, hey, I can do this. They said, uh, yeah, you're too old, go home. So a little bit of background about how did you first get interested in doing you know, if you will, cybersecurity? Did you start out that way at the academy or did you start out in something completely different? Well, I started out in something completely different. Um, much like many people my age, I was drawn to the Naval Academy in large part due to Top Gun. So I, I left for the Naval Academy in 1988 fresh off the movie in 1986. And I did that wanting to be a naval aviator. And one of the things that, uh, that I realized along the way, I did service select naval aviation, but when I got to Pensacola, I realized that that wasn't in fact my passion. And that I was more interest, far more interested in cryptology. So I was fortunate enough to be reassigned to the cryptologic community. And as you pointed out, the cryptologic community back then was squarely focused on signals intelligence and electronic warfare. Crypt or cyber was not a thing. But over time, we became, for the Navy anyway, the centerpiece for what is now called cyberspace operations. Yeah, and it was kind of interesting because, you know, for Navy, for those who are in the military, you'll understand terms like N2, N6. And if you're not in the Navy, don't worry about it. It's just alphabet soup. But uh, different services organize differently and at different rates and at different times. Did you see uh, any either inter-service rivalry going on or was everybody kind of in their own stovepipe of excellence building their own cyber program until such point as somebody said, hey, you know, guy, we, why don't I get you guys all talking to each other? Well, I guess each of us has our own biases and sees our service as the premier service. And I would say based on my experiences, and, and fortunately for me, as you said, I got to live the dream in some respects. I got to be personally involved in the creation of the cyber workforce within the Navy. I was part of the team that created cryptologic technician networks. So the first enlisted rating that was focused on cyberspace purely. I got to be part of the creation of the cyber warrant officer, the first portion of the wardroom that was specifically focused on cyberspace operations. And I got to be part of the team that created the cyber warfare engineers, which are tool developers that dive deep into creating capability from within the Navy for the Navy. Uh, I will say that as time has continued to go on, those three things that we did have been eclipsed in many ways by other services. And though I think that the Navy was the, uh, the first mover in committing to lots of things that were uh, developing capability, both with humans as well with tools, have been eclipsed by the Army 
and the Air Force most specifically. And it's interesting that the Navy kind of getting off to an early start. I mean, we have a different cultural background. I mean, we don't have sergeants and we don't have majors. Uh, we, we have other rank structures that, uh, like the Coast Guard, the sea services tend to be quite different than the traditional land services. Uh, but do you think that independence of kind of ancestry had anything to do with it or just kind of right place, right time, and somebody had a crazy idea and they had a boss who was willing to let them run with it? I think that it was largely due to the, the, the reflection of the leadership that we had in place. Our leadership in the cryptologic community, not specific to that time, but consistent with, with our roots, was very technical in nature, was very well equipped to see uh, the value and specialization and had that deep technical expertise that a restricted line community is responsible for creating. Now, I also believe that as time has gone on, that that square focus on specialized expertise, deep technological capability has broadened so that we can apply things uh, more broadly across the Navy, across other mission areas um, as well. And we have learned to embrace more so the power of the generalist as opposed to the specialist. And that's interesting. So for us, we've both moved on out of the Navy route and what we used to call back then the real world. But as you mentioned, things like restricted line community for those who had not been in that world, it basically means that it's a differentiation in terms of career paths. You know, I was an unrestricted line, meaning that I could ultimately command ships, squadrons, and who knows, even you know, become a combatant commander at four stars had I stuck around. Oh, they, of course, I didn't. But more importantly, the restricted line in the business equivalent is often what we tend to think of as our cybersecurity experts, as an example. For example, you know, we're CISO Tradecraft, and our goal is to help people on their careers to reach what we see often as a pinnacle career opportunity as a chief information security officer. But you usually don't see the CISO then promoting to chief financial officer or CEO or up onto the chairman of the board, and often tends not to go to CIO unless they're dual-hatted to begin with. And sometimes it does happen. Uh, but for a large extent, I think for most of our listeners, their career path is going to be focused on gaining, as you had said, that technical expertise, but also broadening that as a generalist into being able to understand more about how a business works, how it plugs into the overall profit model, if you're a for-profit, if you're a government or a nonprofit, into the mission area. And then how does IT security support that? Does that seem like a fair, fair characterization of what leaders should be focusing on? Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and I, and I love the way that you um, focused in on what a um, restricted line member is, and the way I, I frame it is especially good at fewer things. So a true specialist, and just as you described, many of us working in this field, we are hired to a team to deliver unique value that others can't or don't. Um, for example, in my current job, I work at a at a smart a startup. Um, where I am the director of business operations. And if I was to tell you my, my scope of responsibility is human resources, finance, IT, the security operations center, new market entry, and governance risk and compliance, well, squarely, I am not a specialist. That's a pretty wide portfolio. However, each member of, of my team is a specialist within those, those functions. 
And to a certain extent, then, then wouldn't you say that's effective leadership, where you're able to go ahead and create an environment whereby specialists can perform and excel, whereby as a boss or you know, vice president or commanding officer or director, whatever our title happens to be at any point in our career, our job is to clear the obstacles, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we create the, create the environment for other people's successes and remove barriers or roadblocks on their behalf. So one of the things that first attracted me to getting to talk to you was it's actually been going for several years is you had a blog called Connecting the Dots. And when I first read one of that, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. This is a Navy captain and he's in the cryptologic world, but he's doing cybersecurity. So I already see a lot of similarities, but you weren't just writing random stuff. It was actually some profound thinking is my opinion. And so I wanted to compliment you on that, but let's, let's talk a little bit about connecting the dots. How did you get going on that? And what does it actually mean to connect the dots? Well, I appreciate the fact that you, you brought that up and that you read it over the years. I have not been writing as much as I used to, but I started that blog in large part because I love consuming the thoughts and ideas of others. I love being prompted by other people's lives and learning from and through them. And I felt as though I was being somewhat selfish by not contributing to the conversation. And I, I, I struggled with a bit, and I struggled with it for a bit because I didn't think that I had anything worth sharing. But then I realized that the others who are reading, who I was reading, likely felt the same. So I wanted to reciprocate and contribute to the conversation in that regard. And I had been so fortunate in my assignments. At the time, I was in Millington, Tennessee, as the community manager for the information warfare community. I was learning things that nobody else got to learn from my community. I was there on behalf of the entire community. I wanted to share what I was learning. So a mentor of mine encouraged me to, to start a blog, and I did, to share what I was learning so other people can learn through me and I can inspire a conversation uh, with them. It afforded me the opportunity to learn from them and create relationships with people that I never knew and allow them to be a part of my team in Millington and work things, issues on their behalf. So my initial start at the blog, it was all things work and it was focused on the Navy and being a representative of the community. A funny story is in doing that, I made some senior officers a little bit uncomfortable. And one specific day I was directed to take that blog down because I was sharing too much, maybe without enough context or maybe too much context. So I, I recoiled from that and I decided that if I wrote about life from Sean Heritage's perspective, as opposed to a naval officer's perspective, and I rebranded it a bit, that I could have a voice. I should have a voice. I have a responsibility to, to, to share my voice. So I, I wrote about just observations in life, things that I saw that were focused on leadership, communication, inspiration. And at times, even parenting, because I think that as a parent, that's our most significant leadership position, nurturing our children. And so what I hear then is you kind of went through this little series of progressions where you know, spoke with a mentor. One of the ideas you came up with is a blog. Your blog 
went ahead and it created relationships for you? I mean, just kind of like doing the CISO trade craft. Uh, I often get a chance or the privilege to, to make new relationships and bring folks on the show, which then allows you to contribute to the community. And then with a pivot, you're able to then expand beyond just your community to a few other areas, which is kind of a nice little recipe for somebody who's thinking, hey, I want to do a little bit more. And, and they might be able to follow that way in your footsteps. But you talk about the importance of leadership, communications, inspiration, and then kind of the special combination of all that is parenting. And you know, my, my passion had been leadership. I was privileged to have nine command tours. I commanded the Center for Naval Leadership for a couple of years. And so as a result, I think for the two of us, finding ways to be what I think they call servant leadership has been a role model. Uh, you're probably familiar with that term. I think you reflect that in terms of your your writing in the past. But if you're describing to somebody who hasn't had a chance to read about it, how would you explain the concept of servant leadership? To me, the concept of servant leadership is acknowledging that we are here to enable others, as I said earlier, that a leader works for those under their charge. Those under our charge don't work for us as the leader. And to, when you acknowledge that um, we, as a, as a leader, my job right now, I have eight direct reports. I serve them. They don't serve me. Um, it's, a, it's a mindset that's really proliferated across the Navy and, and largely across the, the, the military. So it's become commonplace to, to those of us who grew up there, what servant leadership was. Um, but I, as I find on the outside, not to say that people don't lead in that same way, but that term is not familiar to them. And it's an interesting concept because some great ideas uh, or social experiments even start out in the military. We go back and we look at the desegregation of the military in the early 1950s and being able to also look at other you know, pilot programs, women being allowed to graduate from the academies back in the class of 1980. And then subsequently, we now have four-star uh, female officers where we could have had them 40 years ago, but it's just that the pipeline is that long. It takes 30 some odd years to get there. And so as we look at freeing up resources and allowing people to grow and be everything that they could be, and I'm trying not to sound like a, a, a recruiting commercial and be all you can be, but the reality is you can be all you can be if you have the right combination of things. And one of those combinations, of course, as you had said, is finding a job in which you can be passionate about going to flight school, going to Picola and say, hey, this is great, but yeah, not exactly what I want. And then having the willingness to kind of punch out and say, hey, I'm going to do something different makes all the difference. Because there's an awful lot of people who go through the motions at work and they're smart and they're capable folks. But at the end of the day, their satisfaction doesn't come from working what they do. Their satisfaction is they're working for the weekend, so to speak. And other folks, people just, you don't have to drag them out of bed on Monday morning. They're like, wow, I get to do more of this. And for those who've never experienced that type of a passionate love of what you're doing, it just sounds like madness, but it really isn't. And for somebody who is trying to develop or understand their passion, they're in cybersecurity. They think maybe I want to leave, maybe I don't, maybe I want to stay technical, maybe I don't. Any thoughts that you would have for people to do a better self-examination to figure out, you know, where's their best future and where are they going to be most productive and, of course, happiest? Well, part of the reason I, I, I was writing so much, I started down the Connecting the Dots path, is thoughtful reflection is something that I believe we all should carve out time for. 
sitting and pondering life is extremely important to me. Writing those things down is a good forcing function for actually giving life some thought. And I chose the name of the blog and now the book, Connecting the Dots, based on Steve Jobs' speech at Stanford University years ago, when he said something to the effect that you can't connect the dots looking forward, but you can connect the dots looking back and make sense of it all and the journey that we go on in life. So when I was getting out of the, the Navy and I retired three years ago this week, I was giving my career 2.0, as I like to refer it, lots of deep thought. What is it that I like? What is it that I'm good at? How do I want to design my life? What are the constraints in which I want to, to live my life? Am I willing to travel? Am I willing to live in different places? What level of impact do I want to have on an organization? What problems do I want to think through? And one of my favorites, which came from my current boss and CEO of this company, is what do I want to learn next? And being in the Navy for as long as we were, and I, and I was in for 27 years of active duty, we learned a lot. It's a long time to be on one team. Now, granted, over the course of 27 years, I could argue that I was on 12 to 15 different teams at each PCS. But the fact that the Navy and the military lifestyle allows you to chop life up into two or three-year blocks and really make the most of each of those chapters Starting out each chapter is what do I want to learn here? How do I want to contribute? And then reflect when it's time to leave, what did I do here? Did I make the most of that time? One, one of the things that I've um, I really connected with me was a gentleman named Alex Sheen, who created an organization called Because I Said I Would. And he did that in honor of his father. His father, he had passed away. And his father's, what is, one of his father's frustrations in life was people who don't keep promises. People who don't do things purely because they said they would. So what I like to do periodically, actually I do it with my current team every week, every Monday, what are the things that we will do this week? And every Friday, what are the things we did because we said we would? Um, and that's, that's really drilling down in a real tactical um, example of a question you ask is that, you know, over the course of the last two weeks, my interaction with you hasn't been good. I've been tactically focused. I've been drowning in execution. I haven't been giving life much thought. I've been doing. So making sure that we put things on our calendar to really look at the life around us, internal to our family, and to, internal to our mental health, our physical well-being, um, and our career aspirations. What are the things we want to do next and do them deliberately and set yourself up for days, weeks, months, years from now to say, I did what I said I would. And I think there's some wisdom, a lot of wisdom in that. And one of the traps I think we fall into is our long-term goals, maybe even medium or short-term goals, are replaced by the urgency and the tyranny of the inbox. As emails pour in, and you have to, oh, I can do this, I can do this. And of course, our psychological, at least my approach is, I'll triage by first throwing away everything I'm not even going to bother to read. And then I'll go, well, I can handle, I'll take all the easy ones and get rid of those. And then what do you end up left with is the one or two or three of the things that are really important, which in a prioritized sense, you should have started with those and taken those 10 or 15 minutes that you were using to clean through all the garbage and handle the little stuff and take, if you will, in the Navy term, a round turn on that one and move it forward. 
So this part of that execution is a personal discipline that allows us to keep focus on what's important, both from our career, personal, physical, spiritual, you look at all the different areas that we have as humans. But how do we overcome that tyranny when the work takes over our priorities and we find out that we're not exercising the way we used to, we're not eating the way we wanted to, we're not getting the quality time that we had, but and we're still drowning in work. It, it just never stops. Uh, what do we do in a situation like that? Well, you, you use the P word there. You use priorities. We all have priorities. Very few of us put them on paper. You know? And I think if somebody watches us execute our day, they can tell us what our priorities were. They don't have to see a list. They can see how we spend our time. They can look at our calendar and say, what are you, no, I see your priorities. I see how you do things. One of the things that I've been having success with um, of late, because I, have, I haven't been drowning in email, I've been drowning in Slack. We, we use Slack in ways I'd never imagined. And, and, and me, like so many others, wanted to be a committed teammate and not let others down. I have become a slave to Slack. So I turn it off. Um, I've implemented uh, time boxing on my calendar. Time carved out to do deep work. Uh, time carved out to do priorities, time carved out to communicate and give guidance to the team. So those things that should be non-negotiable, as you point out, but things that are often left out because we get, we, we get into a response actions and start executing our day and, 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 and doing the individual tasks that are landing on our plate, as opposed to shaping our day at the beginning. Well, a couple ideas on shaping your day at the beginning, and I've heard them from different people. One is don't turn on your email for the first hour of work, which seems almost antithetical to let me get started on the day. But the answer really says, what did you do last night? Did you actually set out a set of goals to execute for the next day, i.e. today, that are in alignment with your medium and longer term goals? And if it turns out that you can't answer that question, then we go, okay, no, no guilt here, no accusation. But when was the last time any of us really wrote down a good comprehensive set of long-term goals? And I remember doing that at least twice in my life. The first one was as a lieutenant saying, what do I want to do? I want to go do computer security. But the Navy told me, literally, the Navy has no need for computer security. And I had to come up with another approach. And so I set myself on a three-year plan to be in business for myself, doing cybersecurity work. I and mean, that's where National Security Corporation came from. It was, a, it was a government job I couldn't go to at National Security Agency because they kept saying, no, that's not part of your career. And then again, probably in the 1990s, when I had a admiral who went to his staff, and by then I was a reservist, and paid for the Dale, not Dale Carney, I'm sorry, um, I should probably edit that one out. My Admiral decided to go ahead and pay for the Stephen Covey training, which allowed us with the seven habits of highly effective people to write down your goals, things. And then what I found out is as a result of having that as a written set of goals, whole bunches of things happened that had been hang time, like enrolling in my MBA program, which I've been thinking about for years, but a lot of us just think about stuff. And so as a result, any thoughts about getting off a top dead center when we're just thinking about things and actually having some way to create the goal, which then creates a pull, if you will, a, a pull function, which then structures us, which gets us going. And all of a sudden we realize that this gets the engine started when we might've just been wandering around for a while. Yes. Yeah, so 
much like you, uh, when I was in the Navy and I, when I decided I was going to make it a career, I had a career roadmap. I knew where I needed to go. I knew what experiences I needed to accumulate if I was going to achieve some of my long-term goals. I needed to engage with what we call the detailer to create these opportunities of what's next so that I could earn an opportunity later down that I truly aspired to. I forget the name of the book. I think it was called Getting Stuff Done. It might have been a more colorful S word. I'm not sure. But in that book, it taught me that everything we do is in one of three different states. It's something that we've, we've just done, something that we're about to do, or something that we're waiting on somebody else to enable us to do. So for every activity, every action we have in life, it's what was your last action? What is your next action? And what are you waiting on in order to take that action, if anything? And I've used that methodology as a way to hold me accountable um, to making sure that I do follow through. And if there's nothing, if there's no next action, then I'm done with that initiative or that line of effort within my life. If I'm waiting on somebody else, which sometimes circumstances are such, then I'm off the hook for now until that other person does that thing or life presents the, uh, the criteria which I can move forward. And I'm always thinking about what was the last thing I did with, with that. So I think ingraining that in our execution and making that a habit ensures that we are always moving forward. But you don't want to just blindly move forward. You want to be moving forward in the direction that aligns with your long-term objectives. So again, back to one of the reasons why I was so committed to writing, and I really need you to get that, is it was such a healthy tool to hold me accountable, to reflect on the journey to date and the next steps of that journey. And then by sharing it publicly, I was creating additional accountability for that follow-through. I did not want to embarrass myself and continue to do things not do things that I said I would. And, and that's part of the reason we have had an uninterrupted streak of 89 weekly CISO Tradecraft episodes. You don't want to drop the ball that far down. And so for, for those who are thinking about what do I want to be when I grow up, and you can ask that question at, really at any age, our program really has been about here's technical skills, here's leadership skills, here's personal skills that we find helps us be successful as cybersecurity leaders. However, whatever title, forget the title and the letters after your name, are you a cybersecurity leader? And we've differentiated in the past between leadership and management and helping people understand what they want to accomplish. Are there situations when you might have a person kind of do a gut check and say, you know, that's not really what I want to do. I just really, really, really love this technology. And the last thing I want to do is sit in staff meetings, do HR paperwork and handle all of the rigmarole that's involved in being leader manager. Um, is there anything you could recommend for people to kind of put them through that gut check to say, yeah, this is a path I'm on, or like you had found out early on in your Navy career, I want to be on a different path. And of course, that decision for you has made all the difference. Yes. For, for me, I wanted to be on a different path because I wanted those experiences. I wanted that lifestyle. I wanted to contribute to the Navy in those specific ways. I wasn't necessarily equipped to do that, but that's how I wanted to grow. And it, truth be told, I had no expectation of staying beyond my minimum five-year commitment. 
But a funny thing happens to so many of us, you end up loving what you do and you end up loving who you do it with. You know, and that five-year commitment turned into 27 years of pleasure, which I truly, truly enjoyed. And one of the things within the military is it's very clear what's expected of you if you want to have a career in the military. That you may start out as wanting to be that technical expert, wanting to be that individual contributor. But if you don't want, if you don't aspire to leading teams, building teams, then there's no future for you in the military. So. If that's who you want to become, then the military makes it, I won't say easy, but it, it provides a nice path for you to develop into a true leader. Um, on the outside, you don't have to do anything, right? You can choose your own adventure. And I watched and helped many people leave the military who were leaders. And you can see on their resume, proudly led to 600 people, read 1, 000, or led 1,000 people. On the outside world, those opportunities don't really exist, especially for your first job outside the Navy or military. Then you will find yourself as an individual contributor, or maybe you have two or three direct reports. That's how I started my first. I was an individual contributor. Now I have a, I'm on a different team. I have a team of, of eight people right now. But it's a conscious decision, as you point out, a conscious decision. Do you want to be an individual contributor? And there's goodness in that. And I would argue that most individual contributors contribute well beyond themselves, right? They are influencing and forming, leading in other, other ways. Um, those who are, I'll say leaders or managers, that's a whole different ballgame. And I've met many people who don't want to do that at all. And that's more than fair. There's a lot of different efforts that go along, as you well know, with managing individuals and leading teams. But it's gotta be a conscious decision that you want to make that leap. Um, and to your question about how does, how does one do that? Well, for me, it's about reading. It's about connecting with other people, listening to podcasts such as this, and seeking out mentors to see what life looked like on the other side, because it's not always cracked up to what you think it might be. Yeah. Now, you mentioned things that you like to read, and we discussed before the show at least one author, but any any books you'd recommend, other than your own, of course, for our listeners to get some kind of good insights? I would have to say that the one of the most impactful books that I've ever read has been Liz Wiseman's Multipliers. Now, I say that, you know, that might sound a little self-serving once I tell you this. The impact was when I read her original version of it. She updated it and happened to share a story in there about me. The reason why that book resonated so much with me is about uh, what she ter terms diminishers. There are multipliers and there are diminishers. There are accidental diminishers. And when I left that book, again, after it inspired some thoughtful reflection, is what does it mean to be an accidental diminisher? What are the well-intended things we do as leaders that end up stifling somebody's initiative, making them feel lesser than, than, than we thought? Um, and really acknowledging that there are unintended consequences to some of the desired effects we try to deliver. The most well-intended things could, could be negative. When you start to really bring on empathy and look at situations through the eyes of others. So that's why that particular book was so 
impactful for me. Now, you had mentioned also uh, prior to the show Ray Dalio. Uh, what do you like about, about Ray's writing and what principles do you think were important that you gained from that? Well, I don't have the book in front of me, so I, I don't so have this is, this is the test. Okay, memorized. this is this is a closed book test, and, and I don't well, I haven't read the book either. So you could answer anything you want. I wouldn't know that the answer is right or wrong, but someone will call yeah. us out on it. What I what I love about that book is how direct and matter of fact it is, and how ba- how much it is based on his personal experiences at Bridgewater, and how unique that culture is with the radical transparency. And that really fascinates me. He's experienced things that I'll never experience. And again, that's who I love to learn from. I don't necessarily need to learn from people who have done the things that I've done. I want to learn from people who, who have done things that I, I may never do. I mean, I think that's how we can learn most in, in life. And that's what Ray does in his books. It's very direct, very principled, to use the name of the book, and really thoughtful from a, from a, a man with many years of experience, uh, leading teams, building teams, and having a great deal of financial success in the, in the path. What do you think your most difficult career decision was? Wow. Uh, my, 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 that's a, that's a great question. If I was to choose one, I would say it was my decision to stay in the Navy at the five-year mark. I did my first tour of duty in ADAC, Alaska. I did my second tour of duty at the National Security Agency, and I was going to get out. I had, fresh, I had my master's degree from Johns Hopkins, and I was going to get out. That was a plan all along. My wife, who is much more adventurous, much more curious than I am, encouraged me to stay in. And the detailer accommodated that by giving us uh, orders to a wonderful adventure at Sixth Fleet in Gaeta, Italy, where I was on the Sixth Fleet uh, flagship, USS LaSalle at the time. And the decision to stay in at that point exposed me to the true Navy. And I realized that my decision to get out of the Navy was done without ever really experiencing the real Navy. And once I experienced it, I loved it. And I served for 22 more years after that. So staying in the Navy was the most difficult decision that I, I made and the one that I am most grateful for, changing my mind. Getting out of the Navy was easy. And I say that not because I didn't love my time in the Navy. I did very much. But I had done all the things that I wanted to do. And the things that were left for me to do were things I had no interest in doing. And 27 years was long enough. That's, that's fair, because I remember reading your blogs from several years back, and you're kind of thinking, well, you know, I could stick around. If I do go left instead of right, I could line up for a star and things such as that. And as I've shared in prior shows, and this may, may hit home very nicely for you, uh, and I'll, I'll stay with the Navy ranks because people have heard me talk a couple of times, you'll make lieutenant commander on proven technical skills, you make commander on proven management skills, you make captain on proven leadership skills, you make flag rank or admiral on proven political skills. And since these are orthogonal, what you find out is that people in their careers may do very well at one, but if they're not planning ahead, if they're not thinking about, as you had said, what's my longer term goal? Where do I want to be? And then maybe the key question to say, other than what's my longer term goal, what skills do I need to possess to succeed there that I don't have now? 
And that becomes the action plan. And if you find out that the skills that you have to go through are just simply things that you have no interest or desire or appetite for, then it's kind of a feedback to say, hey, do I want to join the Navy because Tom Cruise looked really cool in a movie? Or do I want to join the Navy because I find out that I have a contributory role to really make a difference in the lives of the young men and women who choose to serve as well as an overall mission? And it it goes far beyond the Navy on that. This goes for pretty much everybody's career. But uh, how do you how do you get that reality check set in to make sure that we don't go charging down a dead end road only to find a few years later? I, I'm not really where I wanted to be. I'd, I'd love to be able to help people miss a, a, a wrong turn, so to speak. Yeah. So that all of that requires a great deal of reflection and self awareness. Who are you? Who do you want to become? Those are things that. I think most people don't think about. We are taught early on in the, in the Navy, especially that it's all about command. Everybody should aspire to command. Well, no, I really don't. And then what, what 18 year old kid knows what that even means? Once you get to know what that means um, and know what it takes to get there, to your point, it may not be something that you want to do. You may not want to grow in those ways. One of the things that always frustrated me was the upper out, uh, model of the of the Navy, of the military, that there are technical experts who I admire a great deal, right, that want to be deeply focused on mission and don't want to do these other things. That's not selfish, right? That's who they want to become and it's how they can uniquely contribute. Unfortunately, you can't do that in the, in the military as it stands right now. And that's one of the reasons why we created the Cyber Warrant Officer and the Cyber Warfare Engineer is to allow that deeper expertise without any true expectation of management, leadership, things that I won't say take away from the, the ability of a technical expert to contribute, but, but things that are not necessarily, not, necessarily, not necessarily things that those who aspire to having deep te- technical expertise want to have. I'll add to your list, because this is what really hit home for me. When you get to see how certain people live their life, at a certain rank or in a certain position. Like I will tell you right now, I don't aspire to being a CEO, right? That's not to say that I don't work hard, but I don't want to be a CEO. I thought that that might be something that I want to do, you know, and this, this stage of life, I quite frankly, I don't want to, to work that hard. I had the pleasure of being an executive assistant for the four star Admiral Mike Rogers. Great human being, wonderful man, wonderful leader, and a friend to this day. Being at his right hand for those 13 months made it clear to me that I did not aspire to that life. Uh, My wife did not aspire to that life. And though I enjoyed that experience tremendously and learned so much, I knew that I did not want to be an admiral. Not to say that I would have been, right? Not to say that I was competitive for that, but I knew that that was not how I wanted to, to live my life. Now, I talk, as, as I said earlier, I talk with many people about their careers, whether it's transitioning from the military or moving up within. And I try to inspire them to think through how do you want to live your life? That you may think about all the perks that come with certain rank, a certain position. You may think about uh, the salary. The, it comes with being a CEO or a, a leader in the C-suite. But you got to think about these other things as well. 
And I think it's wise counsel because many times we get you know, stars in our eyes, whether they're literally in the military or in the business world where you say, I want bigger, better, more, but understand that there's a price to pay. And the price that's paid is often your time and the quality of what that time is spent. Uh, for those who are a family life, who have kids, as you had mentioned, one of the most important leadership roles you have in life is as a parent. Uh, there needs to be an understanding to say, how much do I want to compromise as a parent to take on this more aggressive role in my career? And it's a question that a lot of people don't stop and ask, but you really kind of should. And you know, we've, we've come a long way from back in the day where I, I think when we started out, Maternity leave was measured in maybe two weeks. Okay, that's it. And then back to work. And paternity leave was not even a thing. It was just something that they did somewhere over in Northern Europe. And we kind of laughed at that. And now I think as a culture, we've evolved to the understanding that families need to get started out on the right foot. And it's really, really important. And it's a, uh, ideally a two-person job to be able to, to get a new life off and running. Not everybody has that opportunity, but for those who do, they should take advantage of it. And so the work-life balance is one of those equations that we need to solve. Are there any other equations that you think might need to be solved before somebody makes a, a definitive plan to go and pursue something that's going to take some amount of time and energy and effort? Well, I think you did a great job of identifying the fact that there are trade-offs for every decision that we make. There are opportunity costs of everything we do. There are unintended consequences with each decision. And it's important to be thoughtful and inclusive of the branches and sequels of each compounding decision. Now, bear with me for a second, because it's been, it's been weighing heavy on my mind of late, because um, it just fascinates me. I, I listened to the book, um, The Midnight Librarian, with my wife. Um, it's a book about, um, I'll, I'll simplify it with, Parallel lives. Par parallel ways our lives could have turned out based on the decision that we made. Right? I just recently, she and I watched the TV show Ordinary Joe that chronicles a guy's life based on three different, one decision, three different options. And it shows that one decision made at the end of his college experience, how that cascaded over time to have very different outcomes. Um, I'm not encouraging any of us to be, you know, analysis by analysis paralysis, right? Overthinking the decisions we make, but being really thoughtful and inclusive of the, the what ifs that could happen and really being inclusive of other stakeholders in those decisions, our significant others, um, our friends, you know, getting, getting input and thinking about things like that. Now, when I left the military, I was uh, fresh off the Defense Innovation Unit and living in Silicon Valley. I, I live in Annapolis, Maryland now, but at the time, I felt it was time to leave California, which happened to be where I grew up, but I was ready for the next adventure. We were there for, for two years at the time, like on to the next. My wife and I made a decision that we were not going to move because we wanted our son to finish high school, where he started high school, right? We made that promise to him. We were going to make good on that promise because we said we would. Ultimately, left as soon as he graduated. Now, I'm not disparaging California in any, any way, shape, or form. 
It's just how we become wired over the years. But the amount of time that my wife and I spent thinking through all of the different ways we could live our life um, was kind of comical um, at times. What is most important to us? Where could we live a life like that? What kind of a job would I need to have? What kind of job would she need to have? And what are the second and third order effects of each? Now, it just so happened that much of that was during COVID. So we had time to think um, and lots of time to spend together, which I'm grateful for. To me, that's the type of thought that needs to go into people's decision-making calculus. Again, not to be paralyzed, but to be inclusive and not do any knee-jerk reactions just because it feels right at the moment. Well, I have, a, I have a sense that we could probably keep talking for hours and keep on turning over all these new stones and things like that. And I can't believe we already 45 minutes have gone by. But uh, any last thoughts or any ideas, things we didn't get into that you think would be important to leave a message for the folks who listen to the show? Well, I think we did cover it. I would just encourage people to contribute to the conversation. There are, there's great value in working, Right consuming content, reading what's out there on on LinkedIn, pick your social media platform of choice, listening to podcasts, but be bold enough to put something out there. Let others benefit from from your thoughts. Inspire us to think a little bit differently. Ask us some questions that we may not have asked ourselves and share your wisdom um, because it's often things that we don't have the opportunity or privilege to to learn ourselves or or to think about. And I thank you for putting on this podcast and this whole series because it does exactly that. Well, thank you. Appreciate the compliment. And as I said, I've always loved your writing and I'm, I'm looking forward to actually kind of looking at the, the book, as you said, you've put together in the book, Connecting the Dots. Uh, you've taken some of your best thoughts and assembled them and, and they look really nice. So we'll put the link to your book in the show notes for those who want to follow through on that. So thank you very much. This has been Sean Heritage joining us on the CISO Tradecraft podcast. This is G. Mark Hardy, your host. It's always been a privilege to spend this time with you. If you don't already do so, please follow us. Uh, Follow us on LinkedIn. Make sure you give us a thumbs up and a like on your favorite podcast platform so we can get our rankings up and get more people to listen in. Of course, share your insights with others and let them know where you learned it. Until the next time, thank you for listening and stay safe out there.